Okay, for those who don't know me, am I on? Yep, I'm on. Okay, if you guys want to open up to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Um, I, look, I'm close friends with Lee Francois and Clint Humphrey, if that's, any, if that's any help at all. If it's not, if you don't like them, then I don't know them. <laughs> all right, I'm just here, randomly. Okay, um, also, look, some of you guys, I always try to get out of the way. You're gonna be wondering where my accent is from and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, look, I was born and raised in Whistler. No. <laughs> but that should give you an indication where I'm from. I'm Australian, and for some reason, all Australians end up in Whistler. I don't know, I've never even been there. But that's what I've heard. And I heard it's just a big, great party up there. Aussies, I, I, we're just, look, we're just a bunch of convicts. We don't know anything else to do but <laughs> to get drunk and party. Anyway, so Philippians chapter two, verse 12 to 18. Have you ever gone for a drive and when the, like, when, you know, when the day is over and the sun is sort of going down, and I'm, on, and I'm guessing on certain particular drives, that's probably including Whistler, but if you go on certain back roads, you go on those drives where it's completely dark, there's no street lamps, there's nothing to guide you. And the only thing truly, the only thing really there to guide you are your headlamps on your car to give you direction. And your, whatever's in front of you, that's everything that you know. Because everything else around you and behind you is all darkened out. So that means you've got to focus. So out of the passage this morning, Paul is actually, the apostle Paul who's, who's writing this to the church in Philippi, he's saying, okay, this is a very particular time where you need to focus. After what you've just heard, now you've really got to knuckle down and focus. So let me read for us Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. And it says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of our faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by your grace you give us your word. That it reveals who you are. But also how we need to respond. So Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, would you continue to work uh, within us as we sort of delve through and work through your word, Lord God. And may we leave here as saints being encouraged as you send us out into the world. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let me give you a bit of context up to where we're at right here in chapter two, verses 12 to 18. So part of the context is this. Paul's in prison as he writes this letter. 
okay? Part of the issue with prison at the time when Paul is writing this is it's unlike prison of today. Prison today, you know, you get three square meals, you get a, you know, you get a toilet, you get whatever it is, you get a bed. You get time for exercise, whatever it is. But in the time of Paul, when you were a prisoner of the Roman Empire, you were given none of those rights. You were given a prison cell, that's it. So help from food to drink to clothes to reading material to warmth, all of that was dependent on outside help. So you needed either relationships with those outside of the prison system to help you. So part of the letter of, to the Philippians is Paul writing to the church in Philippi and thanking them. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the things that you have sent to me in order for me to survive. So I'm thankful for you that God has used you to glorify himself, not just you and not just me. But before this text, before verse 12, right before this, Paul has written what some refer to as the hymn of Christ. It was written to encourage the church to remain humble and to remain in the love of Christ because for Paul there was no better example of humbleness and love, sacrificial love, than Jesus. This is an important factor because you have to understand, Paul has the Old Testament. Paul has Moses. He has King David, he has Noah, he has Abraham, he has all these people. But for Paul, a former Pharisee, he's saying out of all those people, Christ is still greater and still better. He is your ultimate example of humbleness, of servanthood and of love. But after hearing this sort of beautiful theological hymn, how should we respond? What's the next thing we should do? And verse 12 then sort of enters into that. After you hear this beautiful hymn, what are you gonna do now? How should we as a people of God respond? So in the very first words, in verse 12, he says, therefore. So this is now the result, okay? Now that with what you've heard, this is what you gotta do. The very first practical steps he actually tells you to is you got to be, whether I'm there in person or not, you got to be obedient. You got to be obedient. That's the first practical call we're called to. Let me put it to you this way. Remember those times, and if you're a teenager, don't get any ideas. But if you're a parent, you'll get this. Remember when your, your parents decided to go away for the weekend? And they gave you very strict instructions. Don't invite anyone over. You have to have no parties, no one. Now, if you choose not to obey, it's like Christians gone wild. It's like what happens at Whistler. Whether you get caught or not, the relationship in some way is damaged. Because you disobeyed and because you have to maintain the lie when mom and dad come back home and say, well, did you? Nope. And it continues. But if you obey, well, the relationship sort of remains exactly where you left it. It stays sort of the same. Now, Paul uses the term beloved here. He doesn't use it often, but he uses it every now and then. He uses it not to condemn the church, 
even though he knows they're still a disobedient, broken people, he uses the term beloved, why? First of all, because it's a relational term. It's a term to draw them in lovingly. Because if he doesn't call them that in many ways, if they know they're already broken and and need redemption from their sins, then the typical Christian or the so-called Christian, the issue is is that they're going to shift away from Paul and from Christ because of their guilt and shame. And there's too many Christians I know that live through guilt and shame, but not remembering that Christ has called you the beloved and draws you in, not away. He doesn't call you to sit in your guilt and shame and work it out yourself. He draws you in as a loving father draws in the child even when he knows you've disobeyed. And we obey as children not because our just parents commanded and told us when they left for the weekend. We obey because of the relationship we already have. We remember as children how much our parents love us, the sacrifices that were made the good times that were shared and the encouragement received during difficult times. See, the truth is our obedience, one of the hardest issues is our obedience is, I'm finding that it's more now so sort of based on our feelings, our temperament. We start to ask the questions now, and, and as in Christians and non-Christians alike, does obedience interfere with my freedom? That's that's starting to be the ultimate question now. And we don't even like the word obedient now because it sounds now oppressive. But if obedience is just based on our feelings, the problem is we know our feelings go up and down every single day. And then what, what does that mean now? Our obedience is like a roller coaster ride and it's so dependent on what's going on internally. This is why Paul later on again will refer to holding on, like dearly holding on for your life to the word of life. Why? Because scripture, the word of God will continue to remind you about Christ's obedience. That's what Paul was referring to previously in verses five to eight of chapter two. Yes, be obedient, but let me tell you the standard of being obedient. Let me tell you the inspiration for you to be obedient. First of all, you've got to know and experience Christ's obedience and what that has achieved for his people that he has redeemed. And this is why he can call you to obedience, as a father would tell a child. Church, obedience is a beautiful thing. It's getting to the point where now even, I don't know if you know Jordan Peterson. Um, he's a, a university professor at, at, of Toronto. And he's written his book, I just, just read it, but it's The tr- uh, 12 Rules of Life. Um, I wouldn't call him Christian, but he's so close. Um, but he has a lot of Christian values. But one of the things he says, and he spends a whole chapter on is this idea of obedience. And the way he would refer, if I was to sum up the chapter, I would say obedience, Jordan Peterson would say, obedience gets you focused 
and disciplined. And he's saying that's a good thing. Because he's saying in our society now, we're too sort of carefree. Everyone sort of just does what they want. And we think that causes a better utopian society. But he's saying, but no, 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 people, look at the result. We don't live in a utopian society. If anything, we're more segregated than ever before. Because everybody individually gets to make their own decision about life and what's right and what's wrong. Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher and pastor as well, when he talks about sort of obedience and discipleship and what that means for the, for the, for the Christian life, he would put it in one sentence. He would say, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. So the question out of the text is, what, what command are we meant to obey? And to be sort of disciplined under. What is it that Paul is telling the church? He says it, um, what is it? He says it in verse 12 at the end of it when he says that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he commands the church. Now listen, church, he says work out, not work for. Okay? So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So remember, remember that Paul is writing to a church and not an individual. That's an important thing to remember. So why is Paul writing to a church and not an individual? In regards to salvation, because I thought salvation was this personal thing that you decided upon and God saved you, now you get to experience this salvation thing that God has given you. But for Paul, it's a bigger thing. It's a church experience. So. What is the benefit of a church working out their salvation? Think about any sports team. To bring the team together, you need to remind the teammates of the prize you were fighting for. What does that do? What does that do for the team? What does that do for the church? Well, well, if there's a prize, if there's a goal, then the goal unifies us. It doesn't separate us. The goal encourages us to finish the race together, not individually. The goal helps us to make our present sufferings and squabbles seem really small. But the goal makes Jesus look beautiful. And what do I mean by beautiful? There's a sort of a Japanese art form called uh, kintsugi. I think that's how it's pronounced. But you might have seen it. Kintsugi is this idea of um, broken pottery or little bowls. And you see it and, and the person puts it together but he infuses it together, all these pieces, with gold. So the bowl is whatever material they've used, whatever pottery they've used, but you'll see these beautiful gold marks of where the pieces come together and joined. And it's infused with a, such an expensive material. You can get a bowl this small, and each bowl, after repaired, is about $250 per little cup or bowl. But the interesting thing is, is that when we look at sort of artwork like that, 
and the time and the energy spent in those things, we think about the, the art form itself or the product, you know, the end goal. But the truth is, the beauty is in the artist who put that together, who took out the time, who saw the love to take these broken pieces and puts them together. So if you think salvation is about you and you're looking in the mirror and thinking to yourself, oof, that's a beautiful bowl, you got it wrong. It's about the artist that has put you together by his own blood. So despite us thinking that we know what, you know what sort of would make our lives better, that if I got to be in charge of my own life, I can make my life better than it should be. All you have to do truly is look in the mirror. Because maybe unlike you, but every time I look in the mirror, I, I always think about, I'm a disaster. I might look good for you today, because it's Sunday, but ask my wife. Actually, don't ask her. But I'm a mess, internally, inside. There's been multiple decisions in my life that it's been wrong. There's been times when I've probably spoken to my children the way I shouldn't have. There's probably times I've, be, I've made my wife feel really small so I can feel really big. But yet, despite all those daily things, Christ loves and saves us still. But knowing that daily would make him look better daily, would it not? Unless you've made this decision about Christ, this one-off thing that you've done, this one prayer that you did in grade seven, that was the end of it. But the goal is Jesus and the prize is Jesus. Not heaven, not you going up there and on the cloud with your white robe and a harp. I don't even like harps. But once you take out that time and energy to work out your salvation, this should cause us, as Paul would reference to, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. What does Paul mean by fear and trembling? Um, let me put it to you this way. Um, look, I was born and raised in Australia. And coming out here, everyone asks about the snakes and the spiders. But Canadians fail to, to, to look in the mirror. You know why? Let me tell you why. Snakes and spiders, you can step on or outrun. Easy, game over. Here, you have bears. You have cougars. You have a lot of other big animals that are probably better and faster than you that you can't step on, you can't outrun. And the advice that people give you if you see one of these animals is stupid, people. <laughs> Don't run, play dead. Don't look them in the eye. Don't scream, scream, look big, look small. What is it? Just make up your mind. Anyway, that's, I rant a lot. Or better yet, 
it would be like either that experience or this experience of, let's say, for the first time, like I moved here eight years ago. I moved to Canada eight years ago. For seven of those years, I lived in purgatory called Calgary. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I had never seen snow in my life. And then you get about 20 feet of it. You don't know what to do. Anyway, but you have, the, I still remember driving on the road for the first time with snow. And my wife would warn me, and she would hold on for dear life. I remember that very clearly. Now, my, my wife was born and raised in Calgary. But she would warn me, hey, there's something called black ice. You're going to hit it. And I know it happens here too in parts of Vancouver, which is quite entertaining. But you know when you dr you're driving along as if nothing's wrong and you hit, you know what I mean? You hit black ice, you know what happens? You start to sort of tailspin, you go in circles and you're completely out of control. Or if you've never experienced that, then maybe you've experienced on a long drive, you experience something we call like those, what we call mi micro sleeps, right? Where your eyes get tired and they go down and all of a sudden you start to veer off and you hit those sort of bumps on the side of the road and it sort of wakes you up. Or someone on the other side of the road because you've crossed over starts to honk at you to wake you up. If you've ever experienced anything, some sort of almost near-death experience, you sort of pull over to the side of the road or you think to yourself, oh, I can't, I can't believe that. Do you get where I'm going? That's the fear and trembling Paul is talking about, okay? He's talking about this experience of almost like you were on death's door. Death was knocking and you, you escaped barely. And he's saying if you work that out, if you sit there and process that properly, you would be in fear and trembling because of what Christ has saved you from. But you know, but as you sit there, we're using this analogy still, but as you sit there on the side of the road, and as you're contemplating this idea of, whoa, we just escaped, or by God's grace, he saved us. Sitting on there on the side of the road, should produce a few things after you've worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. It should produce in you to be within the same analogy. Well, it should produce you to sort of, it should awaken your soul, should it not? It should allow you to sort of be a bit more careful with decisions and what you're gonna do as you sort of move forward. But Christ's work in salvation for you and I shouldn't cause you to sit there on the side of the road and then do nothing See, God saving us does not cause us to be passive. Or this idea, this ridiculous sentence that has hit the Christian mainstream of let, just, just let go and let God. You can throw that trash out the window. There's no let go and let God. Yeah, let God save you, but he's saving you to something and for something. He doesn't get you to sit there and do nothing like a spectator. What does he say? If you look at verse 13, all of it, 
after you've sort of worked out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is for God, it is God who then works in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. He's saying once you sit there and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it should produce fruit. You should get working. His saving work changes what we do and what we want to do. That's the change of the will. No longer are you there to serve yourself and use your freedom for you. Saying use your freedom for Christ. Simply put, Paul's saying, hey, enjoy, because you've worked out your salvation with fear and that should cause joy in you to serve him and to serve others as humbly as Jesus did. Referring back to early on in chapter two. But then verse 14, we've got problems now. So even after obedience, even after working out salvation with fear and trembling, and even after responding to salvation by serving God and serving others humbly like Christ would, Paul gets back to reality and knows that even with all that, we will fall back to our natural tendencies. And what's our natural tendency? Grumbling and arguing. It's just something we naturally do really well. We've done it as children and we still do it. We're just better at it as, as adults. But for those of us who have children or a lot of us who have or you know, were children, which is all of us, do you remember those times when you would go on a really long road trip and mum and dad would you know, toss you in the back of the minivan and you'd drive, you know, going on your family trip and as you're driving to that destination, you're all in the, you're in the same car, you're in the same direction, you've got the same goal, you're in the same vehicle, but yet in the back you've got your siblings together and you're fighting over seats. You're fighting over space, you're playing a game. Somehow we've created this game. Children, it's amazing. They've created this game where there's an imaginary line in the middle of the van. If you cross over, it's death. It's death to everyone who crosses that, that imaginary line. And the whole ride is just them fighting. If not fighting, they're asking the same question. Are we there yet? And you just want to, if it was legal, you'd punch him in the face. <laughs> we're there when we're there. I don't know what to tell you. If it makes you feel better, you can start walking. But anyway, that's what I want to say. But we are creatures of habit, are we not? And Paul knows our habit is to complain. What about this God? What about that person God? They get that, I don't. Where's your grace in my life? Why do you seem to love that person more than here? You know, whatever it is, whatever excuse we got, whatever excuse you have and I have, we'll use it. But this is why it goes back to the working out our salvation with fear and trembling. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Edge of Tomorrow. It's the only movie where Tom Cruise has actually acted in. 
You can judge me all you want. I don't care. I stand by, I stand by that comment. If you think Tom Cruise is a good actor, you don't know nothing about movies. <laughs> or acting. Think, well, anyway, no, I'm not gonna rant about that. Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible, it's the same thing, anyway. But the tagline in Edge of Tomorrow, the tagline, if you've never seen the movie, I'm not gonna give you the premise of the movie, but the tagline of the movie is, live, die, repeat. That's the tagline of the movie, live, die, repeat. But the idea is, as he lives and then he dies and he comes back again, he's, he, he's sort, of, sort of correcting and sort of trying to do better. Not this, hey, not, not, not this idea of nirvana or anything like that. But what I'm saying is this, is that working out your salvation together with the rest of the church with fear and trembling is not a one and done deal. It's something we do continuously. Why? Because that will get us into the habit of praising rather than the habit of complaining. And in verse 15, why are we instructed not to grumble and dispute and complain? What's the purpose? What's the purpose? I'm, I'm no longer on Twitter. I just, I, just, I just can't do it. For some of you guys who have a better stomach than me, fantastic. But for me, I'm, I'm out. Because I don't want to be in the world of just, Twitter has just become this place to complain. But the problem with Twitter also is it dehumanizes us, does it not? We just see the complaint, but not the person behind the complaint. So we attack the complaint, but not knowing there's a person behind it. So we dehumanize them to make them look like no longer a person anymore. But whether you like this or not, whether they're Christian or not, they're still created in the image of God. And you've belittled them to make you feel big and for them to feel small. And Facebook is trying to make it right because they think, well, as long as we don't have a dislike button, that'll solve our problems. No, the same thing. The world, and the sad thing is Twitter's going nowhere because the world has found its place. It's place in complaining. We've got the pedestal now to do and say what we want. It's perfect. See, Paul is saying this, is that our good works, so after our salvation, that he's calling us to will and to work, right, for Christ, he's saying our good works and our bad words don't mix. But as Christians, that's what we're known for. That we can act all nice, but our words are bad, or whatever it is, and that's why the world dares to call us, and rightly so, a bunch of hypocrites. Paul is saying, hey, let your good works go with your good words. And when they match, you know what happens? You then shine like stars. What is he referring to? He's saying, you're gonna be unlike anything else in this world if you just do what you say.
So let me conclude with this. How does it make you think and feel when Jesus all throughout scripture, all throughout it, not once or twice, but all throughout this redemption story from Genesis to Revelation, when he says to his people constantly that he loves them and then follows, the, follows it up with words. That he doesn't just tell you, I will, you know, I'm gonna go die and I will raise again. He doesn't just say it, but he actually goes out and does it by actually dying on the cross, rising again. And then he also tells us, and I'm gonna come back for you. See, knowing and experiencing Jesus' words and actions actually gives us the ultimate sense of love and hope, does it not? One of the great joys of um, being a parent of two, small, of, of two young children is keeping a promise to your child. It's a great joy. You know, you drop them off at school, preschool, kindergarten, gym, whatever it is, whatever it is that you do, you drop them off and you tell them, or even at Sunday school, you tell them, mom and dad will be right here to pick you up at this exact time and at this exact place. And then you tell them and you'll be right there and when when it happens often and they start to trust your word and they see, okay, they are there at that exact place at that exact time. No longer do they second guess your promises, right? They don't second guess you anymore. And then it's no longer about the promises. You know what it's about? It's just about the relationship that you have. That's what it's like with Christ. He's already kept the promises necessary. Now it's about enjoying him and enjoying him forever. This is why, you know, Paul sort of concludes, that's why you gotta hold on for dear life to the word of God. It's gonna remind you of all these things. It's gonna get you out of the habit of complaining. And it's gonna make you into people of the habit of praising his good and great name. But not just to do with your mouths but also do it with your hands and your feet. So if Jesus has kept every single word and followed up with every single action necessary, then we have nothing to fear. So let us praise him for him. Let's pray. So Jesus, we come before you now in repentance. Jesus, we're just natural complainers. I think we sometimes dislike the way the world is, but there's a lot of us that maybe won't openly say it, but we dislike the way even we are. And we wish we could make the right changes in our life just to sort of make it a little better. But Jesus, We thank you for your death and your resurrection, for your life and your words. Lord Jesus, continue to help us 
as a church to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we would not complain, but we would praise. And not, not only do we, would we praise, but we would also praise you, not just with our mouths, but with our bodies, our minds, and our hearts as well. Because you were worthy, and you call us, all of us, to that. So Jesus, as, a re, as we respond in song, may our worship and our praise to you be worthy in your presence. Amen.